Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra here with Authentic Biochemistry. Uh, today is the 22nd of September, 2021. And if I am right about it, I believe that makes it the first day of autumn. Autumn, of course, is my most favorite of all seasons. Um, okay, so we were talking about the autumn years in human life that is aging for quite a while. And we're not going to stop until we're finished. So let us proceed. Um, last time I was talking about corruptions in the immune system and how they can lead to a plenum of reactions that initiated from those infections or sometimes just reactions to xenobiotics, which I may not have mentioned last time, that culminate in a collection and a sequestration of memory cells. Usually we think about T and B lymphocytes as memory lymphocytes. And these can be triggered upon, upon antigen presentation that these T and B memory cells were originally designed to react to. These could be antigens from, say, a previous bacterial, or viral, or fungal, or parasitic infection. They could also be <clears throat> uh, memory cells that are linked to a mechanism of the innate immune response, which, of course, does involve the antigen presentation. But if there is any corruption in that presentation, even at the level of the differentiation of the given innate immune cells, we talked about macrophages, for example. And way back, we did talk about dendritic cell dedifferentiation. And we'll get back to that, the closing remarks of this whole arc of discussion. <clears throat> so the point is, there's a mechanistic problem that's associated with aging, that all of the underlying biochemical pathways that are necessary to support an innate immune response are complex enough that alterations in any of the major components that lead to control over, say, transcription or translation, or indeed post-translational modifications, such as glycosylation, acylation, prenylation of proteins, <clears throat> and then the ultimate designation of those proteins outside the cell or within membranes, within membranes acting as receptors can lead to a plethora of disease states that go otherwise unnoticed. That is a that below the radar uh, of a um, response in the person that they would need to attract medical attention. And that doesn't mean that there aren't long-term sequelae associated with those inductions and corruptions of the innate immune response. It just means that they go undetected because they don't rise to the level of causing enough pain or discomfort or some other kind of presentation of an illness that would make a person want to deal with it at the level of uh, medical intervention, such as a pharmacological therapy. So that entire aspect of the immune response, constantly dealing with foreign invasion either of pathogens or of xenobiotics or of corruption of gene expression in host cells, which also increases over time because of increases in mutation 
and decreases in the avidity and control of the mechanisms that otherwise maintain cellular homeostasis. Uh, sensu stricto in this conversation, the cellular homeostasis that's involved in surveilling and then responding to potential stressors, which means that cells have to go into active agency and uh, interact and then combat a potential pathogen. Those kind of mechanisms, because they are so complex and they deal with changes in bioenergetics, as well as, as I just said, gene expression, um, tend to be the ones that fade or become more corrupted over time. Time would be then the aging uh, interval of temporality. And that, again, is somewhat arbitrary because people do not all age at the same rate in the biochemical and physiological levels. And I think I've tried to emphasize that for years in my lectures going way back to the 1990s and even into the late 1980s when I first started lecturing in public for graduate biochemistry. So let's proceed from that. I know that was a long introduction, but I wanted to clear that up. Now, last lecture on, uh, on the audio feed, I got cut off right at the end. And I, what I was leading to is what I just explained to you here. So the fact that you have multiple potential for infections over a lifespan and those infections when they're dealt with naturally and appropriately by the immune response will leave a signature. Often you'll have memory signatures and T and B cells that we've talked about, and they could be activated and deal with subsequent infections and similar or similar kite uh, infections. However, because of changes in vagaries, again, in gene expression, and, and at the very end of that lecture a couple of days ago on Monday, I was talking about uh, the telomere shortening and the fact that when you get more and more telomere shortening and telomerase activity decreases, the cell starts to have less and less fidelity for DNA replication. And, it won't, and that was all I was really trying to say at the very end of that. I was almost finished when I got cut off. <clears throat> so I think we're done with that now. So let me proceed with where I want to go next. I've added more uh, to this lecture than when I was going to uh, eventually do, because I, again, I want to get back to the uh, video because I basically want to end the aging arc because I've got a whole new project in mind that I've been working on, uh, as you might guess. <clears throat> so let's go back and talk about interferon and the inflammasome. So uh, you'll probably recall this, but central nervous system resident microglia and even astrocytes will produce cytokines and many different kinds of cytokines, but the ones we're referring to today are the type one interferons and those signal through a receptor, which is known as IFNAR, which is nothing more than interferon uh, receptor, okay? Interferon associated receptors. Now, the binding of a type one interferon with a receptor activates a pathway. It's called the JAK-STAT pathway. It's a kinase pathway. It's signaling, of course, that it's intracellular, and it leads to transcriptional activation of the ISGs, and those are the interferon-stimulated genes. Again, we've talked about this already. And those interferon-stimulated genes, because of feedback mechanisms and feedforward mechanisms, <coughs> something else I cons consistently try to validate when I discuss biochemistry with you, um, they're going to mediate both pro- and anti-inflammatory functions of the type 1 interferons. 
And that depends on the cellular environment. That means basically receptors and co-expression of genes at the very uh, coarse level. Now, of course, membrane fluidity and membrane changes come up big very quickly when you talk about cellular environment. But we'll bracket that for now. So type 1 interferon responses in CNS can arise from infections, but also from TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, which again are common as you age, that you'll get more of these as you age. And what those can associate with, unfortunately, in the aged person is neurodegeneration. And neurodegeneration can further exacerbate this type 1 interferon response, as you might guess. So type 1 interferons can be protective, but they can also be very deleterious. We've seen this in diseases of younger people, like multiple sclerosis, where type 1 interferons are thought to exert and indeed will perform an anti-inflammatory response because interferons can induce the expression or the production of anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10. At the same time, they will suppress interferons in this particular system I'm talking about here in MS. They'll suppress pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-1-beta. So that's why interferon-beta, that particular type of interferon, is a first-line therapy for multiple sclerosis because it limits what it does. It limits the infiltration of lymphocytes into the brain and therefore decreases the relapse rate in spite of the evidence that overexpression of a very close relative, the interferon alpha gene in the brains of, say, um, transgenic mice, is where a lot of this is studied, will associate with neuroinflammation and further neurodegeneration. Okay? So you understand these are not paradoxes. These are not... um, contradictions, right? That's not what they are. They're contrary. Contrary means you can have both things functioning, but you have to explain how they can both function simultaneously. Then they don't become contradictions. They don't deal with the excluded middle term and predicate logic. So obviously interferon subtypes, you just heard that very subtly from me, interferon alpha and beta, titration of those subtypes as associated with receptors, the IFNARs, and then the cellular residency where all this is happening at are all going to be absolutely critical to what looks like a contradiction, but is only really a contrarian event. The type 1 interferonopathies is something we talked about back, uh, oh, I want to say it was in the uh, early summer of 2021. Type 1 interferonopathies are linked to constitutive production of type 1 interferons, and they cause the expression of these ISGs, interferon-stimulated genes, right? Remember this? Type 1 interferonopathies, they result in, they, they can happen because of mutations, I should say. So there are various syndromes. There's the Accardi Gutierrez syndrome, and that involves the activation of microglia in the CNS, and you get what's known as a chronic neuroinflammatory response. A lot of other neurodegenerative diseases we can think about in the CNS, obviously, ADPD, MS, what we just mentioned, and ataxia telangiectasia, which I've talked about in the past, AT. They're all, all those diseases I just mentioned, ADPD, MS, ataxia, are all essentially T1 interferonopathies. So 
obviously we have to bring in this whole complex of thought, neuroinflammation, because what is neuroinflammation involved? It involves the activation of what's called an inflammasome, which is a cytosolic protein complex. There's nothing really sophisticated about it, except what it does. But it contains multiple copies of danger-sensing receptors, which ones, like, for example, AIM-2. Also, procaspase-1 and an adapter protein, which is known as apoptotic spec-containing protein, or ASC. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm reminded, I talked about this. I know this was only like four months ago. Pretty good memory about such things, and even temporally associated, which is strikingly nice and very uh, convenient. Now, activation of the inflammasome in glial and neuronal cells will result in this caspase one activation. It will result in a pyrotonic cell death, and, be, and because of that, it's going to be an inflammatory one, and it's going to cause a release of, you guessed, the, the, the normal uh, uh, suspects in such events, interleukin-1, beta, and less often you hear about it, but I brought it up many times, interleukin-18, two pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, the paper published in Nature Immunology, very recently, this is in March of this year, I will provide the citation in the show notes, tells us the following. This is new information that I've been looking at for the last uh, day or so. <clears throat> when you think about transient, pathogen-induced, and purposed signal-dependent expression, and then ultimately secretion of a type, inter- type 1 interferon, you know that that whole thing I just mentioned to you, is transient, is a big issue. That's why I put it first, very first adjective. It provides an immune defense response. All right. Now, a stochastic, meaning relatively random, and chronic interferon response is often linked to an adverse condition called autoimmune disorders. In fact, we see stochastic chronic inf- inf- uh, interferons in lupus and in Sogren syndrome. I talked about Sogren syndrome before. Uh, I'm not going to get detail that the uh, disease etiology this time. I'm just going to mention it. it's another autoimmune disease. Now, interferonopathies, which those two are, will present in response to, now this is where we get into some granularity, but I always do this for you early on and stay there because this is authentic biochemistry. It's in a response to host cytosolic DNA detection. Host cytosolic DNA detection, Okay. And it's done so via a receptor called the double-stranded DNA receptor. But it has an association with it, a cyclic GMP-AMP synthase called CGAS. And there's a downstream adapter molecule, which is also necessary, and that's called stimulator of interferon genes. And you remember that's called STING. So you've got double-stranded RNA receptor, you've got the cyclic GMP-AMP synthase, CGAS, and then you've got this downstream adapter, stimulator of interferon gene sting. Those are the three major players. Now, introduce mitochondrial DNA. So if you get mitochondrial DNA in a cytoplasm, it's going to induce CGAS sting dependent interferon 1 after some kind of cellular stress-associated apoptosis or failed apoptosis. For example, if caspase is blockaded, 
This is, of course, doing studies in uh, clinical, uh, subclinical uh, animal models. Is Bacchagian pharmacologically? So mitochondrial DNA actually seems to be really important in lupus leukocytes. If autophagy, again, not just apoptosis, but autophagy is blocked. And the way that they do that there is by giving the lysosome something that alkalinate causes an alkalinization, which means a raising of the pH. Lots of things will do this actually. And we've talked about them. Hydroxychloroquine causes lysosomal alkalinization. Okay, that's one that's the mode of action. As do SSRIs and NSRIs. I've mentioned all this in the past. And you can take that for whatever it's worth. Now, all of that then may inhibit the uh, that, that alkalinization of the lysosome I just mentioned to you will inhibit the acid sphingomyelinase. Talked about this in the spring of this year, actually back in the winter too. And that means there's a decrease in plasma membrane receptor mobilization via ceramide cholesterol membrane raft reassembly at the plasma membrane docking site. So that's a very important issue. That's a lot to say. I want you to digest that. I know you'll be able to go back and listen to it a couple of times so you get what I'm saying. Now, non-clearance of defective mitochondria via autophagy, particularly mitophagy, right, which would, should clear up those defective mitochondria, will then result in a consequent mitochondrial DNA-dependent interferon-1 induction. Right? Because now you've got free mitochondrial DNA because you didn't get complete mitophagy. Uh, that mitochondrial DNA where? Residence in the cytosol. Inducing what? The interferon response. Okay? So that could conceivably be a foundational event in the pathogenesis of many autoimmune diseases. Now, you know from experience after listening to me, that is my claim, I guess I could say a theory of mine. I have so many, it's hard to uh, collect them into what I would call theories versus hypotheses. Let's just call this one a, uh, something more on the level of a theory, that much of what happens that causes morbidity and ultimately the diseases you see linked to uh, chronically ill people and I told you that aging is essentially a chronic illness, right? It has a chronicity to it. It also has a sequentiality to it. The more and more that the illness proceeds, that is aging, the more there are the potential for picking up mutations, epi mutations, epigenetic alterations, and uh, inhibitions or corruptions of the mechanisms of the immune response or of the epigenetic uh, reading, writing, and erasing signature processing to alter gene expression in real time, the more all those mechanisms fail, that morbidity turns into higher and higher level probability of mortality, and then that's death. And that whole process often is linked into an autoimmune pathway, often going occult, not your traditional autoimmune diseases like arthritis or, for example, uh, lupus. Although many of the biochemical phenotypes, I should say, pathobiochemical phenotypes that you look at at the uh, subprotein level, you start looking at metabolites, 
looking at bioenergetic responses, looking at uh, membrane fluidity changes, looking at post-translational modification of proteins associated with uh, acylation and prenylation. Those kind of activities are very, very similar to a lot of autoimmune diseases, but they remain occult because you don't see some of the major protein players or stress responses in the blood. So many of the medical profession won't call that an immune disorder. And if you don't have an immune disorder, meaning, oh, high levels of circulating T lymphocytes or high levels of macrophages of the type 1 or just a hyperactive cytokine uh, concentration in the blood or maybe chemokine association with chemotrafficking. Most medical profession people might say, well, that's not really an immune disease, you know, uh, uh, or even an, uh, any kind of immune disease because you don't see this elevation of immune, quote, markers, unquote. Well, my argument is you're not going to see them because you're looking in the wrong place. You need to look in the tissue. And you need to look at individual cells, maybe in the blood, but maybe as resident in organs, for example, particularly bioactive organs like lung, liver, kidney, heart, and of course, the CNS. And we're not too fond. I mean, no one's fond of having a biopsy, particularly in any of those organs, particularly in the central nervous system, even a spinal tap, I understand is absolutely dreadful. So we're not getting that data. And the absence of data does not mean that we cannot try to understand at a biochemical level what is underlying these huge pathophysiological responses that we see as a collection and constellation of morbidities leading to mortality that seems to be linked to chronicity and aging, right? Because we can do that because we have the scientific literature in front of us. So we can interrogate it, examine it, and understand it and turn it into some level of knowledge. And that's what we're trying to do here. All right, so there's a protein called IRGM. That's an interferon-regulated protein, IRGM1. It's one of a 20-member family of known something known as dynamin-like immunity-related GTPases, also known as IRGs, okay? immunity-related GTPases. That gene, uh, the IRGM1, it's the human one, encodes a member of the P47 immunity-related GTPase family, and it's encoded <coughs> by that gene, and it plays a role in the innate, of course, immune response, because that's where we are. It does so by regulating, this is very interesting, the cellular fate mechanism known as autophagy, which we spent a lot of time on authentic biochemistry. <clears throat> and so it does so, this whole protein, and we just talked about RGM, which is as part of this immune-related GTPase family, right, dynamin-like, it's related to intracellular pathogens, intracellular pathogens. So we start talking about receptor-mediated events within the cell, of course. So polymorphisms that affect the normal expression of that gene, the IRGM1, seem to be associated with the susceptibility of a couple of well-known diseases, one of which has an etiologic agent, one of which we don't think does. The susceptibility are from Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disorder, and then tuberculosis, which is obviously a pathogen-associated disease. So alternate splicing of that gene results, here we go, with splicing already, results in multiple transcript variants, which are going to obviously encode, if they are sufficiently translated, uh, different isoforms of the protein. Okay, so this is all 
uh, well understood in the literature going back. All that stuff I just told you has completely been described before 2016, so at least five years ago. So more generally, these IRGs, remember the immunity-related GTPase proteins, have been characterized into two groups based on their amino acid sequence of the GTP binding site. So you have a GKS effector protein, and that traffics to pathogen-containing vacuoles during an active infection, and it cooperatively initiates, essentially, because we're talking bacteria here, an antimicrobial membranolysis, breaking down the, the mi microbe membrane once it's already been engulfed by this process. That's one of the GTP binding sites. The GMS regulatory proteins, such as the IRGM, okay, they prevent off-target, or that is host-induced, okay, host-induced GKS activation by binding to the organellar endomembrane that's involved, which one, it depends. Golgi sometimes, mitochondria often, endoplasmic reticulum, lysosome, all the major ones you would think about. Uh, not so much the nucleus, okay? Because it, normally we don't have this kind of activity happening. There, we have it much more early in the endomembranous system. That has something to do actually with cholesterol content, which I'll do a lecture on someday. Anyways, these GMSs act as GKS suppressive guanine dissociation inhibitors, just like swapping out, you know, GTP for GDP, basically a guanine dissociation inhibitor. You see how that functions at the, at the level of, of, of mechanism. So an IRGM1 double knockout mouse displays a defective cell autonomous host defense. And it does so against many different cellular pathogens they've thrown at it. And the way that that seems to work is because there's some kind of alteration in the autophagy mechanism. Obviously, because that's where we're, that's where we're at now with autophagy, because mitophagy, members a component of autophagy, as is peroxisomophagy. So IRGM1 has been shown to be required for lysosomal degradation of the autophagolysosome, okay? And everything that's inside it. And that's likely the IRGM is required for that because it prevents the GKS protein-mediated lysosomal dysfunction. So it's changing the way the phagolysosome is processed. One from dealing with a dysfunction that no longer can process the antigens within it to one where this IRGM, remember, this is going to be working in contrary to that, is actually required to degrade the entire autophagolysosome. You see, the whole process gets enveloped and sent off, right, to the Antarctic. See how that works, right? So multiple parenchymal and immune cell types from an IGRM double knockout mice will exhibit an abnormal accumulation of these autophagolysosomes, which makes sense. Because if IRGM is necessary to degrade it and it doesn't get degraded, <laughs> if you don't have IRGM, one, obviously you're going to have a lot of abnormal accumulation of these autophagolysosomes. And they're going to be abnormal autophagolysosomes because that's the business of the IRGM, right? Okay. 
So IRGM double knockout mice will exhibit a mucosal selective autoimmune disorder. It's very reminiscent to lupus. And it seems to be essential for understanding the upregulation of interferon-stimulated genes. And basically, it suggests this, this so far, what we've been describing, you get a spontaneous interferon-1 induction. So it's implicated in autophagy-related genes that we've talked about before, the uh, autophagy-related genes like ATG, ATG5, ATG7, and indeed the IRGM, okay, this whole dynamite protein we've been talking about. You see it in lupus, and you see it in other autoimmune diseases in humans. So given all this, these authors in this paper that I'm describing from here, this 2021 paper, they think that a defective mitophagic clearance of what's the major component they're looking at? Mitochondrial DNA, because remember, there's a receptor for that. It's going to turn on the whole C-gas mechanism, right? Because mitochondrial DNA, any DNA, host or not, is not supposed to be in a cytoplasm. So it looks like stress response, which means you better clear that response, which means apoptosis or autophagy, you see? So... In the defective mitophagy that doesn't allow for the clearance of the mitochondrial DNA will then be consequently activating the C-gas sting axis, which we just talked about. And so this could well be something about where we can lock into what's causing the pathophysiology in autoimmune diseases. And they're arguing that this whole IRGM uh, processing may be a good way to look at it. So certainly that's how they got their funding. They did get NIH funding for this. Now, mitochondrial DNA, of course, will accumulate in lupus. And this has pretty well been established because it's a failure of complete mitophagy. That means complete, that means complete digestion of defective or old mitochondria. Uh, 